0: And just one more short prayer to our faithful God. Faithful God, we thank you that you have given us your word. Pray that, we pray now that you will enliven our minds, that you will take my words, and by your spirit that you will teach us more about who you are and how we should respond to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. The new year is a time to look ahead, which we've already started to do. Although it's only another day, it's an opportunity for new things. I wonder if you've already... Well, we've been thinking in our prayers uh, what this new year will bring. Do we think, I hope it'll be better than last year? We've probably greeted one another with a happy new year. But we all know that as well as happiness and prosperity... A new year may bring sadness and disaster. Today, we have many reasons for being afraid of the future. On a world scale, this past year, there have been hurricanes, floods, climate change, freezing weather, and a big recession. On a national and local scale, we've seen demonstrations over the increase in student fees. We're aware of proposed cutbacks in council spending, in family allowances, in the provision for the care for the elderly. And personally, I wonder how you feel. Some may be fearful of losing their employment, of rising costs, of knowing how to meet the bills, of providing for the family. The unknown can be very scary. Some of us get very anxious as they look ahead. What will happen if I get sick or I have an accident or I find I can no longer provide for myself or my children? Perhaps those are the things that hit those of us who are a bit older than the younger ones. But others cope by blocking out thoughts of the future and just living for today. So how about us, you and me? In many ways, we live in a very rich and comfortable country. We have food in our shops, we have water in our taps, most of the time, heating in our homes, education for our children, and a good health service. We live in a democracy with free speech, and our country is not torn apart by war. Yet, when we... When what we have breaks down or we take on board the anxiety and violence that we see on the media, it's very easy to get stressed and fearful. Is this how it should be? How should we as Christians live in society today? In faith or in fear? So my question this evening is, who controls the future? It's a question that's been asked by many people through the generations. And it's one that God asked the Israelites through his prophet Isaiah when they were living in captivity in Babylon. As they and the Babylonians faced a much more terrifying future, the threat of the invasion of Cyrus, king of Persia, who had powerfully conquered all the nations of West Asia, from the borders of India to the borders of Asia Minor that is, all except for the mighty empire of Babylonia. And now King Cyrus was heading their way, and the people were sick with fear as to what the future held for them. So at the new year of 541 BC, the people of Babylonia were very afraid of what the coming year would bring. The people of Babylonia included the Babylonians themselves, the Israelite exiles, the slaves and traders from almost every nation in West Asia. And God's prophet Isaiah had a message from God that was for all the people. And using picture language and written as a poem, we read how God calls the nations of the whole earth to attend an assembly for a debate Entitled, Who Controls the Future? I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 41. You'll find it on page 725. And we're going to just very quickly start a little earlier than we did in the reading. The debate opens with God asking the nations about King Cyrus. Who do they think is giving victory to Cyrus? Verses 2 to 4. Who has stirred up one from the east? It is I, the Lord, God replies. It's me, verse 4. It's clearly not the idols, mentioned in verse 7, made by human hands. For he adds with a touch of sarcasm, although beautifully made... They have to be nailed down so they won't topple over. But you, Israel, God says, don't forget, I have chosen you. I have taken you from the ends of the earth. And although you're going through hard times, I have not rejected you. I will strengthen you and save you. You'll see that in verse 10. And then God predicts three coming events. First of all, in verses 11 to 13, he will liberate them from oppression. Those who rage against you, who oppose you, will perish. You may feel feeble and despised like a worm, says the Lord, but I'll help you. Secondly, he will be their redeemer, their family protector, verses 14 to 16, guaranteeing their freedom and securing their future. And thirdly, from 17 to 20, he will personally provide for them and not forsake the poor and needy. So why will he do all this? verse 20, so that the people will see and know that the hand of the Lord has done this. And so then we come to the real debate from verse 21, where God challenges the idolaters to prove that their idols truly are gods. The Babylonians had an elaborate New Year festivals they believed that the gods of heaven and earth all assembled in the Esagila temple in Babylon at New Year. So all the images of their gods were carried from various temples for this occasion. Marduk, the leader of the gods, was placed centrally. And Nebo, his son, and the secretary to the council of the gods, was placed next to him. And Sarpinitu, his wife, was nearby. This New Year festival of 541 BC was particularly significant because they hadn't really celebrated for a while because King Nabonidus had returned now to Babylon. He'd been away. I won't go into the details of that. And it seemed that now not only was he back, but that the Babylonians were facing this tremendous threat of King Cyrus, the Persian king, and that the Babylonian Empire was facing its end. On the eighth day of the festival, it was tradition for the king to enter the temple and to stand before the images, while the priests chanted the story of creation. The king then grasped the hands of the chief god Marduk And the fate of the nation for the new year was actually forecast. Then the priests took the images of the gods out of the temple and with great pomp and ceremony processed them on special carts down to a canal. There they were transformed into special barges for a journey to special new year pavilions that had been set up on the banks of the Euphrates River. Three days later, they were brought back and placed in their temples until the next year. So maybe you can picture that. This is what the Babylonians were used to doing. But with the end of Babylon apparently imminent, this New Year festival was a suitable time for Isaiah to present God's struggle for the new world. So verse 21, present your case, says the Lord. Bring in your idols to tell us what's going to happen. Always in scripture, when we get something repeated, it's important to pay attention to that. And we have the words, tell us, three times here. Can your gods direct the course of of events in the whole world? And again in verse 22, tell us so we will know the final outcome. Tell us what the former things were so that we can, can consider them and know what's going to happen. In other words, is there any record of your God Marduk speaking in the past which has been fulfilled already? And the challenge comes again, verse 23. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know That you are God's. God, through Isaiah, is taking the nations and their idols to court. What proof do they have of their idols' knowledge and power? None. What can their idols tell us that we didn't know before? Nothing. What evidence did they have of their idols' achievements in former times? None. It's an open court. Where's the evidence? It's thought that Isaiah is wanting the nations to think about who controls history. The basic question is whether history has any meaning other than the struggle between powerful nations. Is there more to history the national self-interest. The people and the idols have nothing to say. Their gods are impotent. They're worthless, without knowledge and without power. They cannot predict the future. Verse 29 says, See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. And those who follow these worthless idols are detestable in the sight of God. That is a very strong statement. They are repugnant, abhorrent, odious, hateful. Strong language. God hates all those false ways of foretelling the future. He detests those who play with tarot cards or read horoscopes. And I think that those of us who are believers and yet still rely on superstition, such as touching wood, must surely sadden the heart of God. These are things of the world, of the devil. And we who trust in God should have nothing to do with them. Can they help us? No. They only control the mind and feed our fear. Let's make sure that we toss them away from us this year if you're tempted with any of those things. So what's God's point of view? In chapter 42, Isaiah tells us that God is going to send his servant, his chosen one, to bring justice to the nations. No God or religion could give meaning to the coming of Cyrus at that time. Only the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, Isaiah refer, refers to God in that, those terms in chapter 40, verse 28. The everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He is the only one who oversees world history. Cyrus would invade Babylon and conquer it. And the almighty God would use him to do his work, to bring new possibilities for the nations to begin again. But as always, God's purpose was larger than that of Cyrus. Often with biblical prophecy, there's both a current application and a future one. So it is in this case. As you know, God will use King Cyrus to free the Israelites from bondage and bring justice at that time to the nations. But in the future... God will send his son, Jesus Christ, as his servant, as the saviour, as the redeemer of the world. God will keep his covenant with his people in years to come. When Jesus comes as a light to the Gentiles, you'll see that in 42, verse 6, to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from the prison of sin. For God's ways are higher than our ways, much larger, much wider than ours. And he is a jealous God. He will not let his glory go to another or his praise to idols. This is something we need to take to heart. So who controls the future? Is it man with his skill and ingenuity? No. Is it the wisdom of scientists, politicians and world leaders? No. Is it terrorism or weapons of mass destruction? No. Is it outside spiritual forces? No. The answer is simply and only that it is God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of the world, the giver of life. He has a worldview, a plan for all the nations. He has spoken throughout world history, through the prophets, but most of all through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's through him we have new life. And he has given all those who believe in him the gift of the Holy Spirit, who will be our comforter and guide us into all truth. What else do we need? There is something we need the sovereign God to come again in power, to fulfill his word that he will come again to set up his kingdom of peace and justice on the earth. And until he does so, we need to open our minds to what he has to say. And we need to expand our vision to the things he's going to do in us and through us. As a church, and as a community of believers. Even as Christians, we face difficulty and temptation. We know that difficulties and temptations are allowed by God in order to discipline us, to teach us deep lessons, and to mature our faith in God. Those of you who've been through a hard time will know that that 's the time you just have to cry out to God, and your faith grows at that time. and looking back, sometimes you can say, "Well, it wasn 't good, but I did was able to hang on to God, and he proved to be faithful and Paul assures us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse thirteen, that he will never allow a believer To be tempted beyond what he or she is able to endure. Thinking about temptation just for a moment, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness was a prototype of victory for all who follow him. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he was able to rebuke Satan's temptations by recalling and quoting scripture. This also strengthened Jesus' own resolve to follow God's intentions. And so following Jesus' example, we need to feed on the Scriptures, to read and reflect on the Bible daily, and to be alert to the inner voice of the Holy Spirit. I read just this week that research shows that those who read the Bible regularly are much more active in their Christian faith. Ed Miliband has said this week that 2011 will be a year of consequences. He predicts a horrible year ahead, presumably anticipating stringent cutbacks following last year's financial recession. And the temptation for us is to take on board the fear voiced by our politicians and our society and to seek to find our own solution rather than God's solution. On a personal level, for example, in tightening our belts in order to meet increased bills, the temptation may be to reduce our giving to God's work through the church or through mission. Or maybe if you've been just sort of thinking about taking out a standing order to start giving regularly to the church, your temptation could be well, let me just leave it a bit and see um, how it goes. If you do that, you might well be missing out on the blessing and the joy of giving. while it's important for politicians and local councillors to find solutions to managing the financial situation of our country, and for us to be wise stewards of all that God has given us, let's not shrink back in fear, but put our confidence in God and move forward, prayerfully seeking his will in all areas of our daily lives. In addition, as a Christian community, we need to support and encourage one another by sharing what we have, just as the early church did. So whatever our situation, whatever your situation, whether we view last year with nostalgia or or with regret, God moves forward, time moves forward. God is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, our creator and sustainer. He is the one that controls the future. He asks that we trust Him and Him alone. God tells us not to dwell in the past, but to move forward in faith with Him. Jesus, God's servant, has now come as our saviour and redeemer. He has paid the penalty for our sins and has set us free to live to his praise and glory. So let's move forward in confidence into 2011 and hope to share in the work of building his kingdom. I can't help but quote the old hymn from the 1960s, Maybe some here who don't know it. I know who holds the future. It goes like this. I do not know what lies ahead, the way I cannot see. Yet one stands near to be my guide. He'll show the way to me. I do not know the course ahead, what joys and griefs are there. But one is near who fully knows I'll trust his loving care. I know who holds the future and he'll guide me with his hand. With God, things don't just happen. Everything by him is planned. So as I face tomorrow with its problems large and small, I'll trust the God of miracles. Give to him my all. Let's pray together. A prayer for the new year. O God of new beginnings and wonderful surprises, thank you for the gift of a new year. May it be a time of grace for us, a time to grow in faith and love, A time to renew our commitment to following you, Jesus. May it be a year of blessing for us. A time to cherish our family and friends. A time for us to renew our efforts at work. a time to embrace our faith more fully. Walk with us, please, in every day and every hour of this new year, that the light of Christ might shine through us in spite of our weaknesses and failings. Above all, may we remember this year that we are your sons and daughters in Christ and you are Emmanuel with us. Amen.